Hi, uh, welcome to the IMA. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land where we meet tonight and where the IMA sits are the Turrbal and Yagara people and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and recognize that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, yeah, so my name's Carl Weiss. Thanks for coming tonight. I'd also like to thank the IMA for hosting us. Uh, it's a co-presentation between uh, Kuiper Project, which is an RE I run with Simone Hine and uh, the IMA. And uh, so, yeah, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned, yeah, my name's Carl Weiss. <laughs> and uh, I, um, I'm the co-director of Kuiper, which is an RE. I also work at Metro Arts and where I'm the curator of the exhibition program there. And I'll introduce uh, the two speakers. So the way tonight will run is we'll have a bit of a discussion. I'll kind of introduce the project that this is part of and talk a little bit about the Faraki work. And uh, Catherine Brimblecombe-Fox and Baden Palethorpe will speak a little bit about their practice and we'll have a bit of a discussion. So that'll go for like 40 minutes, say, and then we'll have a little break and then we'll screen the Faraki. So parallel one to four, uh, together they'll run for about 45 minutes. Um, so yeah, so uh, Catherine Brimblecombe-Fox uh, is a local artist and she works in painting and her current research is specifically focused on drones uh, and she's spoken widely about the contemporary culture and context of drone uh, technology and, um, and use. Uh, and these thematics kind of are considered in her paintings, which navigate a connection between contemporary militarized culture and landscape. And so even though um, tonight I'll be talking a lot about, and Faraki's work is about digital imaging and computer graphics, uh, Catherine doesn't use computers at all in her work, but uh, has an aesthetic in her painting that, that kind of borrows from that. And can talk about that a little bit. And uh, Baden Palethorpe is an artist and is uh, currently based in Canberra where he's the convener of hybrid art practice at ANU School of Art and Design. So Baden has a pretty amazing history of uh, national and international exhibitions and we've worked together a few times over the years. Uh, so actually last year he had an exhibition at Kuiper Projects and he currently has a show at Metro Arts, <laughs> uh, which is on until the 30th of November, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and that's called Asset, Asset Pack. Uh, so Baden's early work was very much focused on video games and um, militarism and recontextualizing, reworking found footage. Uh, but his practice is now more focused on procedural works. So works that are generated algorithmically in real time. Um, and he often uses Unreal Engine and other tools of video game creation. Um, yeah, so that's uh, uh, there'll be a bit of a preamble because uh, yeah, the screening is part of a much larger kind of ongoing project. So I'll, I'll contextualize that a bit. But um, yeah, that project is called Topographic Resolutions. And uh, Topographic Resolutions 1 was a show I Simone and I organised in 2014 um, in Melbourne at a gallery called Screenspace that we used to run and uh, Topographic Resolutions 2 is kind of a sequel to that which the screening is part of and there'll be a show at Kuiper that will be open from this Saturday until the 30th um, of November. And uh, this screening and exhibition and Baden show at Metro they're completely unaffiliated with SIGGRAPH, but it's kind of an interesting um, a coincidence uh, that SIGGRAPH Asia will be in Brisbane next year. So SIGGRAPH, sorry, next week. Yeah, not next year, yep. So SIGGRAPH is a long running and it's a really significant conference and trade show that brings together innovations in computer graphics and interactivity. Um, so I thought it was kind of interesting to run some kind of low 
key kind of artistic um, responses from people who are kind of at the fringes of that world. Um, although Sidegraph will include an artist kind of element. Um, and so Bait and Show at Metro, Kuiper and this screening are sort of in dialogue, dialogue with that. Um, yeah, Sigraph is really uh, significant uh, in terms of the history of the development of computer graphics. Um, so it's kind of, this Sigraph Asia is a newer iteration of that, but the first time it's been brought to, to Australia. Um, so yeah, but so topographic resolutions one was at screen space, as I mentioned, um, and we presented three consecutive solo shows. Um, and we curated work from the turn of the century that used computer graphics to reimagine landscapes. So uh, it was kind of, we thought of it as a chance to kind of look back at turn of the century video work that was kind of cutting edge and kind of consider how that, um, the fate of those and the trajectories they seem to map. Um, so we included Swell, which is a three channel Patricia Piccinini work, which I actually, coincidentally first saw at the IMA um, when Patricia had a solo show here and Simone, who co-curated this with me, had a show actually in this space at the, at the same time. <laughs> but, um, and yeah, so here she used kind of Hollywood tools to create this digital ocean. And yeah, she was telling us how she didn't have the license because the it was so expensive. It was like what James Cameron was kind of using so they constantly have to reinstall it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it has this kind of photorealistic element. And also um, it uses this digital ocean to kind of emphasize the metaphorical connection of landscape, which is kind of important across this, um, across this uh, project. Um, and like this experience of being kind of set adrift and disoriented in a networked kind of digital context. So um, yeah, like there's just this kind of undulating um, waves with no horizon. Um, and like liquid forms, I think, continue to fascinate. Like there was Hito Stirl's Liquidity Inc, which was shown here, and um, a work I'll be showing at Kuiper by Trent Crawford, kind of minds that. And then we also showed Nicolas uh, Moulin, who's a French artist, his work Beta Paris, um, which reconstructed a sort of future Paris with uh, these sort of subterranean freeways running through it and emptied of people. It was a um, software-based work which randomly generated images. Um, and then we showed Kelly Richardson, who's a UK-Canadian artist, um, a couple of works, but one in particular um, how the devil had like this kind of single tree uh, shaking in the wind. And I mention that specifically because uh, it comes up um, in the Faraki film, uh, this idea of kind of leaves, um, wind in the trees and how that maybe relates to, relates also to early cinema um, where people were fascinated by seeing trees shaking and that kind of chance element in the kind of piece of art, whereas like painting at that time, everything was kind of very controlled. So it added this kind of, um, yeah, this element. And I also mentioned that because the shift from cinema to, to simulation is really important across Faraki's career. Um, so, yeah, so now I'm curating the second iteration of topographic resolutions. Um, and that has more recent work by emerging artists or kind of semi-emerging, some of them. Um, and you can see the works that we showed at Screen Space, like they all use large projections and a sort of black box kind of model like Acme in Melbourne where the way the works are kind of dematerialized um, in terms of the technology used to exhibit them. Uh, and screen space was normally white, like a white space. So those shows where we painted it black were kind of unusual for us, but um, they kind of reflected that turn of the century 
kind of video art thing with like big projections and darkened spaces and cinematic. Whereas, yeah, like I th the works that I'll be showing at Kuiper uh, next week or from Saturday, they're really interested and they emphasize like the technologies of presentation and, and so the technologies they're presented on of screens as well as the the um, technologies of their production. So there's no interest in like photographic realism or mimicking cinema. Instead, they kind of embrace the specificity of the um, the digital. So like this cloud series by Sarah Luddy, she started with a Photoshop image. She's been making these works for about eight years and they all start from a continuing After Effects file that she just kind of layers and layers and creates new new iterations of the cloud. So it's very much about like just pushing the presets of the software rather than trying to mimic a uh, photographic. Um, and I think that's uh, kind of something I'll return to a little bit because um, it's really important to the <coughs> work we're going to show later. Um, and also clouds kind of are a bit like the kind of liquid in Piccinini where they're this constant kind of metaphorical, um, uh, metaphor kind of data storage and, and Catherine's work uses clouds a bit in, in terms of those metaphorical connections. And the Faraki has this like extended sequence of just this guy like working, clicking, making these clouds, which um, So, which uh, like images of workers is really typical across Faraki's work. Um, one of my favorite of his work, Workers Leaving the Factory, is just all about how work has been represented in, in Hollywood cinema. And um, he also has a, a really well-known work called Deep Play, which analyzes a soccer match as a kind of workplace, um, which maybe connects a little bit as well to some of Baden's recent work, Klanger, which kind of analysed an AFL match, whereas uh, um, Faraki, yeah, just analysed a soccer match. Um, but yeah, so, okay, so it's in the context of this broader project, topographic resolutions, that I became interested in parallel, specifically. Um, like, it, it's kind of a bit of an outlier in his career. It's his last work. Um, he's much better known for works like Serious Games, which have really explicit kind of political um, message um, and where he looks at like digital simulations in the context of treating post-traumatic stress disorder and all these military contexts. Um, but here, as you'll see in uh, parallel, he looks at commercially available video games. Um, so central to his work has been this idea of an operational image. And so this is an image that performs work in the world. Um, it's instrumentalized by industrial or military contexts or images not made to be contemplated, but that kind of do something in the world um, as instructions for action or data for processing into actions. So Thomas Elsasia, who's written a lot about Faraki, he notes that like, this kind of operational image, it's not just in advertising or surveillance, but it, today it kind of com could be used to describe any image. Um, and so the move from like an image to something to be looked at as an image is something to be clicked on, even kind of as, as simple as that. Um, and in parallel, this element of the operational image, it's a little less obvious and given his kind of tendency towards highly polemical work, it seems like really weirdly distanced from it, its subject. Um, almost maybe a sketch as he started to really think about digital games. Um, but yeah, but he died in 2014, so we kind of didn't get to see where he might have taken that. Um, but one thing about Parallel that's clear is Faraki did not play many video games. And uh, <laughs> it really comes across as like someone who's never played a video game looking at them. But you'll see, and apparently his research collaborator, um, Matthias Rauschman, had a teenage son. And so Faraki just got him to play video games. 
and he got him to play hundreds and hundreds of hours of video games while he watched. And uh, he uh, kind of took notes and recorded it and just asked uh, this teenager to explore the worlds instead of really trying to win the games. Um, so, and the, this kind of distance, um, yeah, you'll, you'll see. So across the four parts, part one is really interested in natural phenomena and almost in a kind of teleological narrative from like um, graphical lines to photorealism, which seems very kind of obvious and traditional, but by parts two to four, he kind of starts to turn it on its head. So that's when the politics start coming out because you start getting into the anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic characters and avatars. And so you start to see the emphasis on violence, which is usually gendered and colonial expansion and, and these sort of elements of kind of mainstream gaming. Um, but Faraki was really interested in the limits of gaming uh, and the way the world's become these hermetic floating islands, um, which is kind of a physical... M Sorry, that's my, my phone going off there. Yeah, but that, that kind of hermetically sealed element almost becomes a physical manifestation of the game world of, of like this kind of masculine, homogenised, sealed world. Um, and it's often ultra-violent. And I mean, you just walk around any city and you just see all these ads for Call of Duty and Assassin's Creed. And I mean, mainstream gaming is very kind of violent and it's not really explicitly discussed, but the interactions of the characters, it kind of, Baraki really starts to emphasise that as it goes on. Um, <laughs> so there's kind of narrative about fidelity to of the digital to photorealism starts to get undermined um, and Faraki shifts attention to the rules that these worlds create. So just as like in parallel his work, it's kind of just beginning to shift from an interest in reproduction of the world as in like photography, montage, film to the construction of a new world via simulation um, wh where the limits of the game world are tested and glitches appear. It kind of reminds us, I think, that what we see and experience of our own reality is usually nothing like the reality that actually underlies this. So this is kind of my reading, is that parallel creates a connection between our kind of apparently free-roaming reality and, and open-world gaming. Um, in both, we kind of wander a kind of seemingly endless landscape, but occasionally discover its limits and kind of glimpses of its reliance on unseen algorithms and data sets and I think that's why this is an interesting still that we've kind of used and it's also one yeah video data bank who provided the Faraki gave me where it's this kind of glitch this kind of threshold of uh, of worlds um, so yeah so I've kind of talked on a bit but but it kind of tried to contextualize um, uh, Faraki, yeah, within this put a broader research I'm doing uh, and other exhibitions, but yeah, but now maybe uh, if uh, Catherine wants to speak a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, hello everyone and thank you for the IMA for having this here and Kyle for asking me to join the conversation. Um, I'm, I'm just going to link up with some of the things you've said. Like Faraki, uh, I have not played a lot of computer games. However, in the 90s when my children were born, I did buy computer games that were meant to teach the children to read and all of those funny <laughs> sorts of um, um, jungle scenes where you know, they were to identify colours and so forth. I never found them terribly successful. But one of my daughters is um, um, has does has and still does play computer games, so Assassin's Creed and so forth. So I have had some assimilation with computer games. Um, apart from that, my father, whilst he was a farmer, he was also a very uh, keen ham radio, amateur radio enthusiast. So I grew up with gadgets and gizmos, cameras, video cameras, film cameras, 
antennae, um, all sorts of aerials around the farm. I made my first transistor radio when I was about eight or nine, took it out to Dad's ham shack and hooked it up to various wires that made the, you know, it, it could connect to more signals. Dad made our first television set in the early 60s on the dining room table. I'll add I was a very small baby at the time. Um, he was one of the hams that tracked Sputnik 1 when it went up in 1957 and he had to send coordinates back to somebody who then sent them back to the jet propulsion unit that then became part of NASA. So um, I've been interested in technology for a long time. Um, on the farm, one of my brothers, Wilfred, had a dark room. Uh, so, you know, we, uh, and then, you know, he became a, um, very interested in photography, obviously, and now, you know, has digital cameras, etc. Um, so, about t 10 years ago, I read a book called Our Final Century by Lord Martin Rees, who's the Lord Astronomer in the UK, and it was called Our Final Century. So, it went into various apocalyptic apocalyptic scenarios that could see the demise of the human species and or the planet. Um, and it got me interested in how um, emerging technologies were posing threats to civilization and the human species, to the, to the planet. And then um, I, was in, I was asked to go back to the University of Queensland to do a master's research degree and I wanted to look at existential risk posed by emerging technologies, but that's a rather large topic. So I narrowed it down to militarised technology and I deliberately set the degree up so that, you know, the art history part, I looked at um, how George Giddos and John Catapan represent militarised technology in their paintings. Both artists have been in war and conflict zones. But the actual um, research into drone technology was separate. It was a, more from a cultural studies aspect, but I did a lot of technical research too because I knew that to um, have integrity in my visual analyses of Giddo's and Catapan's paintings, I needed to um, be, be sure of what I was saying. That component of the degree then fed back into my practice. So this painting here, I've just got a few paintings, I'll just talk about them and as we talk it'll come out. But uh, you were talking the limits of computer games. I was reading only the other day that the, the um, controllers that uh, are used for Xboxes and so forth, um, uh, are now being used, for instance, to operate scopes in submarines. And last night I watched a video by, uh, promotional video by Ray, Ray Thorne, I think their name is, it's an arms manufacturing company, yeah, in um, the US and they've developed an anti-drone laser technology. So there's a laser beam that tracks the, the, the drone and then um, locks onto it and then a high energy laser takes out the drone. And they're using a um, controller that's that you would normally use for a computer game to actually operate this thing. So that's fairly interesting limit. <laughs> um, but in this painting, I've got a, a, a weaponized drone. It's got four Hellfire missiles and two guided missiles. It's based on the Reaper drone. But I've painted the, the two of the drones in a, a, a sort of parody of the pixel sort of saying, well, this kind of technology is creating fake landscape elements. These drones are, are like a fake sky. Um, and it plays into that idea of uh, the computer-generated image, of which, of course, the remote uh, drone pilot is um, operating these things from thousands of kilometres away. And the image, I often think, is only provided because a human is still in the loop. If you've got artificial intelligence doing the scrutiny of an image, does that really mean that the image is necessary? Because the, 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 the software can actually examine the image in a different way to the human being. So I'm thinking about things like, well, is this the end of the image sort of thing? Um, the in many of my paintings, you feel as if you can fly above or below the drone. So here, are you below the drone looking up or are you above the drones looking down? This is a deliberate thing and it comes from growing up on the farm and as a very young child flying. And it sounds fanciful, but I knew what our farm looked like from above, even though I'd never been in an aeroplane. So this, this, this kind of aerial perspective has been in my work for a long time. Um, these two paintings, um, um, interestingly linking back to the discussion on clouds, here uh, drone swarming. When I first started uh, researching uh, the drone, there was just early, reasonably early um, 
um, development of drone swarming technology. Now we've got a, a number of countries who are developing drone swarming technology. China, I saw a, a very um, scary promotional video put out by a Turkish company um, that had uh, kamikaze drone swarms. Um, in the, at the end of 2017, some um, AI researchers and robotic researchers produced a film, short seven-minute film called Slaughterbots. At the end of the film, uh, Professor Stuart Russell, who is a 35-year veteran of robotics, basically says this might appear to be a fiction, but every piece of um, technology portrayed in this very scary film we have now, it's just a matter of putting it all together. So the one over there called New Clouds, again, you could be above or below, so I invite you to fly. I call it an imaginational metavalence. So you're not sous failing because you're not just under it, you're not surveying, you're not just over it, you're actually over the surveillance. You're actually um, in a position in your imagination, which of course the machine doesn't have, and that's one of the reasons why I stick to painting. Um, and it's a very deliberate choice. I don't stick to painting for a nostalgic reason or a, some sort of romantic reason. I actually think painting in this age has something very significant to offer. So the drone swarms form these fake clouds. Now, when I painted this, I was thinking about living on the farm and living through a, a locust plague. And literally, the locusts did look like these clouds that would then swoop down onto my father's crops. They were so bad, they were in the house. They'd jump over you when you were watching TV. They'd draw blood if they were, um, as they jumped off your nose or your face. So um, the idea of these swarms of um, mechanised insects creating clouds, which of course then feeds into the whole idea of cloud storage and the fact that it isn't uh, vapour. You know, a lot of people, apparently, some people think that cloud storage is some sort of vaporous thing, but it's bricks and mortar that sucks up um, huge amounts of energy. In a lot of my paintings I put in um, colourful strings of binary code, sort of as a subversive way of uh, visualising the, the unseen or the invisible algorithms. In this one the planet is formed by colourful strings of binary code instructing um, the word empire. So this painting was inspired directly by an academic who writes about drones um, in Shaw from um, Glasgow University and he's got a book called Predator Empire. I call this one Code Empire. The radiating lines are meant to be the signals so I'm very interested in visualising or making visual the signals that enable the operation of this technology. Without signal connection, most of this hardware would be completely inert. You know, our phones would not operate. We could use them to throw at each other if we needed a weapon, but they wouldn't um, work. I see this occupation of landscape as um, um, a kind of persistent state of war readiness so that these signals, when you visualise them, it's kind of a counter-mapping type of exercise on my part to visualise the signals. In this one, and it feeds into the Faroqi because it's called um, um, Beware Whispers the Wind. So the tree at the back is the tree of life and that the tree feeds into the Faroqi uh, work too. But in my case, I use the tree and I have done so for a long time as a symbolic representation of the tree of life. Here, the, the drone creates a, a cuts the landscape in a kind of false horizon. The um, computer graphic-like um, orienting markings at the bottom are imposed and occupy. I call this a techno-colonisation of the environment, leading to new modes of empire and therefore power. Read a very interesting article today about the captured city, that you know everything that's linked actually in, in, enables other kinds of forces other than good to appropriate the, the city and uh, surveil people. Um, this one again is just another demonstration of the imposition of um, signalling and the kind of computer graphics that are flat. So Paul Virilio's work really influences my ideas with these sorts of works. I'm also interested in his idea of the accident. So if you invent the ship, when you invent the ship, you've invented the, the shipwreck. 
to me, one of my questions is, with this connect interconnected and networked system, what is the accident of this system? So, you know, in a, a natural disaster or a man human-made disaster, what is the worst outcome? So in 1859, a mass coronal ejection, which is a huge solar storm, hit the Earth and it was at the early stage of telegraph and the telegraph um, um, stations burst into flames. Can you imagine if something like that um, hit us? And in 2012, we missed one by one week. We went through our orbit. Um, this one here is called Drone Spiral. Um, there's only two more. Um, and it's the pale blue dot. So I'm playing on Carl Sagan's idea of the pale blue dot that, you know, there's no indication that anyone's going to come and save us from ourselves, as he said. When I was a little girl, I used to draw um, house plans and I'd put them into streets and I'd put pools and trees and schools and I'd actually put families and name them all. Here I've replaced the houses with um, drones. Some of them are pixelated and it, uh, it is uh, literally, in my mind, landscape falling away from the pale blue dot or collapsing into the pale blue dot that with this kind of computer-generated imagery, our susceptibility, the seduction of it, the flatness of it, there's a whole range of things. It, it means that does landscape, um, or questions whether landscape, as we know it, disappears, and our ability to orient ourselves in the real landscape. So this one here called human, again, it's got the binary code at the bottom. You're not quite sure. <coughs> whether the target is a, um, a gun scope or a computer screen or a camera. If any of you have shot a gun, I have, I'm a country girl, so I know how to shoot a gun. Um, you know, you, uh, this, is, this is very much like um, targeting. Uh, the human, unusual for me, although I have put figures in here, but they've used the tree of life to create shadows and it kind of saying, well, what, what can't the machine see? And in my mind, it's things like love, imagination, those things that are um, human. And that one over there, of course, is um, representative of the, the scopic gaze. Um, I came up with this term, which I was rather pleased with, uh, scopophilic necrointimacy. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like playing with words. But that gives you a, a bit of an idea of my work. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. It's interesting as well you bring up uh, Paul Barilio, he's like a pretty kind of apocalyptic thinker. Um, but like his book, the reason I'm interested in talking a little bit more about him is because like his book War and Cinema was very much, from 89, was very much about tracing these historical connections between popular film and technologies of entertainment and their role in the military, um, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I think when we talk, and obviously your work is very explicitly about these kind of militarised technologies, but like computer games and CG is very tied to the military. I mean, it was only invented in order to create flight simulators mm -hmm. uh, in the Cold War when there was just like money pouring through ARPA, which is pouring into research. And that's how computer graphics were developed. Um, in 1973, they cut a lot of that funding, but, but the, um, the basis was there and the military still kept investing specifically for simulations. Because if someone's flying a like $100 million plane, you want them to be in a simulation. Um, but also like, there's some really kind of more anecdotal connections to the military because post-World War II, there's all this military technology that no one needs anymore. So oscilloscopes that measure voltage, they have a little screen on them, and radar screens were kind of thrown out and refound by artists. And so the very first computer graphics animation was made with an old oscilloscope that had been repurposed. Um, and that's the start of those kind of line animations that you'll see. But so yeah, I think that military connection, even when you're talking about work that isn't explicitly about, if it uses computer graphics, it has a kind of military history. Um, Baden's work is kind of particularly the earlier work was really explicitly and shares with Catherine this kind of 
um, aesthetic of the drone. You'd have like this kind of, it's almost like a fetish of like this gleaming drone kind of technology against these kind of desert landscapes and um, and also the cloud. I was just thinking I wrote that thing, the first draft that was about Sloterdijk and and the cloud is this kind of metaphor mm. that has um, has some kind of interesting connections. Yeah, that was back in what twenty eleven, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. So. <laughs> For a um, yeah, this kind of toxic smoke plume that I found in Call of Duty, which is uh, using some of the cheats that I think Karan Faraki was playing with, or his assistant's son, or whoever <laughs> it was. Um, but yeah, that is a good segue. Um, so it's, I guess similarly. Uh, I grew up with a uh, like an academic father who was working in computer graphics. So um, I grew up playing a lot of video games, uh, but also got the chance to play on some very expensive computers, uh, like silicon graphics machines and supercomputers are kind of like really early simulators um, that were kind of only in science labs, I guess. So um, yeah, I guess I started being interested in uh, video games from a, a non kind of entertainment point of view as soon as I was, um, I guess, kind of connecting some of the ideas I was learning about in my undergraduate degree, which wasn't in art, funnily enough, but uh, more in sort of contemporary politics, I guess. Um, and linking, yeah, these, I guess these, these ideas that we've been talking about so far, um, the military history of technology, that's kind of always implicit, um, if not explicit. So the, um, the work on the top right there is probably indicative of sort of, um, I guess, work I've been making um, since the mid-2000s, I guess. Um, it's a series called Cadence. Um, and these are a series of works um, that built on some uh, work I was doing using or repurposing military training simulators um, and looking for uh, like glitches and hacks and trying to kind of use them as performative environments to test the politics of the um, the, the environments themselves. I mean, in the, in the Hiroki work, in the Hiroki work, um, serious games, it's interesting because he touches on, you know, the idea of uh, these platforms being used for training but also for um, rehabilitation of people with PTSD. So there's a really interesting kind of connection between the, um, these environments and how they get people ready for war, I guess, and then how they used to kind of de-war people uh, or kind of like de-traumatise people from the things that they were trained to do. So there's a kind of weird sort of um, uh, kind of way that these, these technologies kind of fit both sides of the... I guess the psychological spectrum of training and then rehab. Um, so these works are um, made in that same software program that you that you'd see in serious games. It's called Armor, and there's like a, um, a sort of a civilian version and there's a military version, and they're they're both pretty pretty similar. But they're kind of niche, I guess. They're not sort of um, your typical shoot 'em up. They're very uh, complicated, and you can kind of choreograph a lot of um, scenarios, I guess. And they're not sort of um, like games that are stuck on like rails, I guess you have a lot of a lot more freedom to kind of explore the environments. Um, so I use them as a kind of context to kind of create performance works, I guess, and then film them um, using software. So um, yeah, that's a kind of I guess a good example of the way I've been using military technologies, I guess, and repurposing them a li little bit. Um, so on the bottom left, there's a, um, a little snapshot from a series of works that I was doing on the Reaper drone as well. I feel like the Reaper drone has been this kind of uh, a real kind of symbol of um, contemporary militarism and the the strange semi-autonomous kind of very decentralized um, networks of um, violence, I guess, that are kind of taking place these days. So this is there's a series of three works. One of which was in uh, Show at Art Space in 2015 uh, on Return of What Remains, which uh, featured serious games by Herm Froki as well as some work by Irma Fast, um, who's done a lot of really interesting cinematic work on drones. Um, as well as Benita Eli, um, Australian artists, and um, Richard Moss, who all kind of work around this, like some of these ideas, I guess. Um, so yeah, I guess these these sort of works were looking at the fetish of the military object and the kind of the very strange um, forms that things that are designed to kill people take. There's a kind of weird, lush sort of death drive at work in a lot of these technologies that take on a certain shape for operational reasons or technological reasons. They're optimized to certain spaces and forms and techniques that are that are for violence, but in those things kind of cultivate very strange aesthetics that are oddly appealing. Um, and the, the kind of the weird thing about this work that you're seeing is it's in the Parliament House collection in Canberra and it was on display for a while. So it was really weird having um, a work. And of course, when you're working in a, um, an aesthetic that's quite critical, but subtly critical, I guess, it's very easy to be misinterpreted, particularly for people that aren't like 
coming from a kind of critical framework, particularly politicians. Um, so I sort of felt really strange having a work there that was probably getting enjoyed by people who were kind of a bit fetishistic about, you know, violence and, and uh, military kit. Um, but at the same time, it's a kind of, you know, a subtle way to infiltrate the system in a sense. Not that it has any effect, but still. Um, and so the work uh, top left is, I guess, more kind of recent. It's, a, it's from a series called Pitch Deck. And it was looking at, I guess, the kind of links between financial markets and the art market and the way that um, artists can kind of be traded like stocks, I guess, and the way that assets, uh, art assets are used in Freeport storage and um, as a way to kind of avoid tax and all the kind of interesting financial operations that are also used by the elite to kind of, um, yeah, I guess, manipulate the system in some way or to gain advantage um, and use kind of really interesting kind of loopholes territorially, like such as freeport storage in airports, for example, where there's the kind of tax-free jurisdictions that escape kind of... Um, they're never kind of, like, shipped properly. They're always just kind of, like, stored in these non-territories that are um, not dissimilar to the kind of techniques of, like, offshore processing of refugees that we do. So it's a kind of very strange connection between art and violence and politics a lot of the time that we're not always that aware of, I think. Um, and more recently, the bottom right work that you see there is, um, I guess, what Kyle alluded to before about um, the AFL work I've been doing. Um, so it's a series called Clangor, uh, which is a statistical term in the AFL for something like a stupid mistake that they can't really measure properly. So it's a really lovely word, and it kind of has an interesting statistical meaning. So this is the work I did. Um, I started in 2017 with a, um, a synapse residency with uh, UTS Sport and Exercise Science. Um, and they uh, have research students and people embedded in different teams, so like AFL and NFL. And, um, and sports are really interesting because it's, uh, it's also highly surveilled. It's also kind of highly um, controlled. It's highly choreographic. It's got, you know, similar kind of levels of investment, um, you know, billions of dollars worth of investment in, in kind of uh, in cultivating a human body that's kind of elite, that's... Um, I don't know, very sculptural, that's very kind of performative in, you know, in very specific contexts. It's trying to do a very specific thing in a very specific way. There's a lot of tactics, a lot of strategy. Um, so the, the aim of this uh, research project was to kind of um, develop a way to try and represent the energy of crowds at, at football games, which is you know, a very palpable thing, but not necessarily very easily uh, quantified. So um, like everything else, I guess, data is... Um, uh, collected a lot in sport, um, particularly AFL. They, uh, each player has a little micro-wearable device that they wear between their shoulder blades, uh, which tracks their measurements 10 times a second. So it's got a gyroscope, a GPS, and an accelerometer. And from that, they record about 20 different categories of biometric data um, 10 times a second, <laughs> so in training and in, in games, which is um, quite big data. So one game produces about a billion data points for both teams. Um, and it's quite interesting because they don't really use it for anything except for injury mitigation because they invest so much in these players because they're, um, you know, they're trained to do this very specific thing. Um, and if they get injured, then they lose lots of money and they probably won't you know, win any games. Um, so there's this whole planetary scale surveillance infrastructure around just tracking these athletes that is you know, obviously from the same places. All these yeah, and I was sort of interested in it because um, you know, at first I was looking at it as a really uh, constrained environment, I guess, um, but then I realised, of course, like we're all getting tracked in a similar way, not as intensely, I guess, in, in some ways, but, um, you know, these players are tracked on the field and they, they create a kind of interesting squiggly line and um, it's quite nice. Um, but then, of course, they're getting tracked in lots of other ways as players, but also just as humans. The, you know, their trail, as it were, kind of goes back to their house, it goes wherever it goes, you know? It's like it's not a trail that stops, it's a continuous trail. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. So um, there's... Uh, so that's a kind of yeah, broad snapshot of my work, I guess. Uh, I can show you a quick excerpt of a recent uh, video which deals, I guess, more explicit with the digital landscape in some way. Um, so this was a commission for the uh, Lion House Museum down in Melbourne, which opened earlier this year. Uh, so it was a uh, commission to make work uh, with a bunch of other artists um, looking at, uh, I guess, a kind of fairly generic idea of the viewer, the artwork in a space. Um, but I decided to create a portrait of the museum uh, because there's a lot of interesting uh, crossovers between uh, digital art in general, I guess digital practice, anyone that's using technologies and architecture. There's the same, um, you know, a lot of the same software is used. There's a lot of shared kind of workflow and procedure. Um, so I kind of used that um, close proximity of the, I guess, the two kind of parallel practices to, yeah, create this... Um, 
portrait of the museum, which is set in the uh, place where most of the material of the museum comes from, which is the Western Victorian volcanic plains around Port Ferry. So this is a place where bluestone comes from, uh, which is a really common kind of material in um, architecture, I guess. So the NGV has got lots of bluestone, for example. Um, so these files, the CAD files are interesting because they contained every single object in the museum, including uh, the toilet rolls, the coffee machine. Um, so it's a kind of like really interesting and wholesome kind of representation of the space. And through, um, you know, a kind of using some procedural algorithm that uh, lets you kind of create thousands of alternate architectural spaces, I guess. And so the idea was, because when you're seeing this, apart from you guys, um, unless you were at the exhibition, um, you, there's a kind of spatial collapse, I guess, between uh, the building you're in, which is usually, you know, you have a kind of very, architecture is a very physical and, and immovable, uh, mostly immovable presence, I guess. And there's only ever one way that you can kind of experience it, I guess. So um, this was a way to kind of, uh, I guess, just play with that a little bit. Um, it really, having seen it, I'd only seen stills before, but seeing mm. it move, it reminds me a lot of uh, Zaha Hadid. Mm. Like before she was actually getting stuff built, when she was just doing these kind of concept drawings, this sort of like explosion mm. of, of um, shapes and lands, like across the landscape to try yeah. and represent, yeah, these kind of multiple perspectives, mm. the simultaneous and like potentials of the building. Yeah, and her work's quite alien, I guess, it's like yeah. really, yeah, yeah. otherworldly. So the yeah, concept art's an interesting kind of thing. So so as it was installed, it sort of looked like that um, at the end there. Um, that Patricia Pitchening. Yeah, so there's a nice link to yeah. the, um, to the, earth, the first iteration of your show. So, so this is in the new line house. Yeah, show. so there's a new show on there. This was uh, March to about July, I think, yeah, this year. But it's a, it's a lovely space. Cool. Well, uh, uh, thanks for that. I, yeah, I think um, you both kind of have much, yeah, like these overlapping um, thematics around militarism and landscapes. But obviously, the uh, the technological kind of outcome of that, in terms of the material of the work, is totally different. Mm. Um, so I think you kind of touched on this a little bit about that kind of self-awareness, but kind of is that an important part of your work, like thinking about like why, because your work uses a lot of these same tools. Mm -hmm. So is it just about kind of trying to, to redirect them or? Yeah, I think originally, um, you know, I was making the works in like military tra training simulators, for example, I was very influenced by the kind of stuff you learn in art school, like situationists and the derive and all this, the, like the idea of detournement and like just kind of taking something and like spinning it, recontextualizing it, remixing it. Um, and in that process, having a kind of minor political gesture that then diverts the meaning somehow. Um, but yeah, I guess it's sort of like, you know, and we're sort of, I guess, naturally critical um, and like to kind of test the limits. And even before I was an artist, I was interested in, um, you know, finding the, the holes in the video games and like finding the Easter eggs and, um, you know, trying to break them and because you can kind of get bored playing them, I guess. So you start playing with the game instead of uh, or against it, I guess, instead of with it. Um, and in that process, revealing kind of fun things. Um, but then, you know, later on, I guess you realize that that can be quite interesting politically as well. And then you can push it further. And um, as you both were saying, like pushing the limits of technique and platforms to find out where are the weak spots, like where are the interesting, um, you know, points of, of pressure, I guess. And then you push really hard and see what happens. Yeah, mm. yeah. It, it kind of, in that sense, it's really connected to this Baraki, but he's just kind of touching on them. He doesn't kind of push yeah. them. Yeah. 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 Um, Tung Huey Hugh is a book called The Prehistory of the Cloud, and in that he actually brings up this um, um, question of neutrality in terms of artists who do use technology to produce their work and. I think um, these days we do have to be very critical about the medium we choose to use, um, and but not necessarily um, um, conscript ourselves into the system. You have to be constantly thinking about, well, how do I stand apart from it? It's one of the reasons why I, I have deliberately 
stuck to painting because um, clearly with my upbringing and you know I've got a brother who's was in supercomputing and um, now manages the cloud storage system for Nectar, the research mm. gate for universities and another brother who's in lighting and uses technology. So, um, you know, there is a, it's, it's not a sort of, I'm not a troglodyte in terms of, you know, just sticking to painting because I actually see that if it, there's a life in it, if you actually examine it as a medium in a critical sense against the world in which we live. Yeah, your work also yeah has an interesting connection to sort of more like landscape painting in that like you don't have any horizon lines and this sort of disorientation um, of a um, of a medium that say in its kind of nineteenth century kind of example the landscape is very much about dominating that kind of landscape and this kind of colonial kind of perspective whereas this kind of the the viewer can't find their feet and mm. so like there's none of that kind of uh privileging of this sort of uh human gaze yeah it's a deliberate attempt on my part to invite people to fly you know in their imaginations and so if you don't have definite horizons if there are mixed horizons it it enables a multi-perspectival approach and um, you know I think today with the number of issues that we're facing we need multi-perspective so it's a bit like you know, multidisciplinary research you know different disciplines ask different questions but if you're able to um, put yourself outside of an environment um, uh, you know, I often think, well, pretend your, your um, Voyager 1 or Voyager 2, both of now satellites have now left um, the solar system. Imagine you're looking back at the pale blue dot. You know, it's, it's, it's what do you see? And, you know, that, that thing that um, Sagan said, there's no, no indication that anyone's going to come and save us from ourselves. So we do need to um, conscript a range of different perspectives in order to trigger questions. I mean, the paintings don't have answers. They are like to think that um, any discussion that ensues is uh, triggers questions in the people who are talking about it. And I had that experience when I exhibited in the Middle East in 2005, 2006 at the Abu Dhabi Cultural Foundation. The tree of life was in my work and people from all over the region came to the exhibition. They knew immediately that even though it wasn't a, trad a traditional representation of the tree of life, that it was the tree of life. The conversations I had with people on a daily basis started with the paintings but didn't end up being about the paintings. And I think that's the power of something that 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 is triggering. But thank you so much for uh, Thank you. Both coming here and talking about your practice, yeah, it was really fascinating. Mm, thanks, Carl. Thanks,